0: thought I could make it a nice tradition to maybe just read on weekends, and in general I've really been thinking about this medium of audio, spoken word, podcast, conversation, live speaking, audio documentary, I don't know what you want to call it, it's all of those things. And, you know, I've been making fun of podcasts forever. I just, I hate podcasts. I tell people all the time, like, you know, don't tell me about your fucking podcast. Don't tell me what shit you listen to. That's infotainment. That's bullshit. It's noise. It's nonsense. I don't want that. I don't want to distract myself from my day. I want to engage deeper. I want more time. And uh, so it's like, wait, but this is a podcast. And I mean the really easy answer to that is I think that like it's it's how I think of, you know, just hate in general, like hater aid. <laughs> um, I don't hate podcasts. I I don't hate the medium. I don't hate any of those formats that I just described at the top of this a minute ago. I hate the way that people use it. I hate the way that people don't really put that much consideration into what they're making and what people are consuming. That's what I don't like. So I want to try and do it better. And I love my, uh, audible app and I love pocket when it talks to me, when it talks articles at me, I love that I can consume more and better. And it's uh, i can read while it's talking to me also. And I could That's what I do for Roberto Bolaño. I have the Audible going while I'm reading, and it makes my comprehension better for some reason. So I thought that I would start putting some of my favorite books or writing into, um, into this show, especially ones that I don't think are on Audible. So pretty sure there's no audio of this one. And I thought a great place to start would be tea. And I think even though there are older books and there are, I think just, you know, China is the definitive, but um, Kakuzo Okakura's Book of Tea is really, it condenses everything into 38 pages and it's really, it's it. And it's my favorite and it's the one that I encourage people to read first to get into tea. So... Here we go. I'm just going to read it and um, enjoy. The Cup of Humanity." Tea began as a medicine and grew into a beverage. In China, in the eighth century, it entered the realm of poetry as one of the polite amusements. The 15th century saw Japan ennoble it into a religion of aestheticism. Teaism. Teaism is a cult founded on the adoration of the beautiful among the sordid facts of everyday existence. It inculcates purity and harmony, the mystery of mutual charity, the romanticism of the social order. It is essentially a worship of the imperfect, as it is a tender attempt to accomplish something possible in this impossible thing we know as life. The philosophy of tea is not mere aestheticism in the ordinary acceptance of the term for it expresses conjointly with ethics and religion our whole point of view about man and nature. It is hygiene, for it enforces cleanliness. It is economics, for it shows comfort in simplicity rather than in the complex and the costly. It is moral geometry, inasmuch as it defines our sense of proportion to the universe. It represents the true spirit of eastern democracy by making all its votaries aristocrats in taste. The long isolation of Japan from the rest of the world, so conducive to introspection, has been highly favorable to the development of teaism. Our home and habits, costume and cuisine, porcelain, lacquer, painting, our very literature all have been subject to its influence. No student of Japanese culture could ever ignore its presence. It has permeated the elegance of noble boudoirs and entered the abode of the humble. Our peasants have learned to arrange flowers, our meanest laborer to offer his salutation to the rocks and waters. In our common parlance, we speak of the man with no tea in him. When he is susceptible to the seriocomic interests of the personal drama, again we stigmatize the untamed aesthete asth- asth- who regardless of the mundane tragedy, runs riot in the spring tide of emancipated emotions as one with too much tea in him. The outsider may indeed wonder at this, seeming much ado about nothing. What a tempest in a teacup, he will say. But when we consider how small, after all the cup of human enjoyment is, how soon overflowed with tears, how easily drained to the dregs in our quenchless thirst for infinity, we shall not blame ourselves for making so much of the teacup. Mankind has done worse. In the worship of Bacchus, we have sacrificed too freely. We have even transfigured the gory image of Mars. Why not consecrate ourselves to the queen of the camellias and revel in the warm stream of sympathy that flows from her altar? In the liquid amber within the ivory porcelain, the initiated may touch the sweet reticence of Confucius, the piquancy of Lao, and the ethereal aroma of Sakyamuni himself. Those who cannot feel the littleness of great things in themselves are apt to overlook the greatness of little things in others. The average Westerner, in his sleek complacency, will see in the tea ceremony but another instance of the thousand and one oddities which constitute the quaintness and childishness of the East to him. He was wont to regard Japan as barbarous while she indulged in the gentle arts of peace. He calls her civilized since she began to commit wholesale slaughter on Manchurian battlefields. Much comment has been given lately to the code of the Samurai, the art of death, which makes our soldiers exult in self-sacrifice, but scarcely any attention has been drawn to teaism, which represents so much of our art of life. Fain. Would we remain barbarians if our claim to civilization were be t- to be based on the gruesome glory of war? Fain would we await the time when due respect shall be paid to our art and ideals. When will the West understand or try to understand the East? We Asiatics are often appalled by the curious web of facts and fancies which has been woven concerning us. We are pictured as living on the perfume of the lotus if not on mice and cockroaches. It is either impotent fanaticism or else abject voluptuousness. Indian spirituality has been derided as ignorance. Chinese sobriety as stupidity. Japanese patriotism as the result of fatalism. It has been said that we are less sensible to pain and wounds on account of the callousness of our nervous organization. Why not amuse ourselves... Why not amuse yourselves at our expense? Asia returns the compliment. There would be further food for merriment if you were to know all that we have imagined and written about you. All the glamour of the perspective is there. All the unconscious homage of wonder. All the silent resentment of the new and undefined. You have been loaded with virtues too refined to be envied and accused of crimes too picturesque to be condemned. Our writers in the past, the wise men who knew informed us that you had bushy tails somewhere hidden in your garments and often dined off a fricassee of newborn babes. Nay, we had something worse against you. We used to think you the most impracticable people on earth, for you were said to preach what you never practiced. Such misconceptions are fast vanishing among us. Commerce has forced the European tongues on many an Asian port. Asiatic youths are flocking to Western colleges for the equipment of modern education. Our insight does not penetrate your culture deeply, but at least we are willing to learn. Some of my compatriots have adopted too much of your customs and too much of your etiquette in the delusion that the acquisition of stiff collars and tall silk hats comprised of the attainable of your civilization. Pathetic and deplorable as such affectations are, they evince our willingness to approach the West on our knees. Unfortunately, the Western attitude is unfavorable to the understanding of the East. The Christian missionary goes to impart, but not to receive. Your information is based on the meager translations of our immense literature, if not on the unreliable anecdotes of passing travelers. It is rarely that the chivalrous pen of Lafcadio Hearn or that of the author, The Web of Indian Life, enlivens the oriental darkness with the torch of, your, of our own sentiments. Perhaps I betray my own ignorance of the tea cult by being so outspoken. It's very spirit of politeness exacts that you say what you are expected to say and no more. But I am not, a, I'm not to be a polite teaist. So much harm has been done already by the mutual understanding of the new world and the old that one need not apologize for contributing to, uh, contributing his tithe to the furtherance of a better understanding. The beginning of the 20th century would have been spared the spectacle of sanguinary warfare if Russia had condescended to know Japan better. What dire consequences to humanity lie in the contemptuous ignoring, ignoring of Eastern problems. European imperialism, which does not disdain to raise the absurd cry of the yellow peril fails to realize that asia may also awaken to the cruel sense of the white disaster you may laugh at us for having too much tea but we may but but we <laughs> but may we not suspect that you of the west have no tea in your constitution let us stop the continents from hurling epigrams at each other and be sadder if not wiser by the mutual gain of half a hemisphere. We have developed along different lines, but there is no reason why one should not supplement the other. You have gained expansion at the cost of restlessness. We have created a harmony which is weak against aggression. Will you believe it? The East is better off in some respects than the West. Strangely enough, humanity has so far met in the teacup. It is, on, it is the only Asiatic ceremonial which commands universal esteem. The white man has scoffed at our religion and our morals, but has accepted the brown beverage without hesitation. The afternoon tea is now an important function in Western society. In the delicate clatter of trays and saucers, in the soft rustle of feminine hospitality, in the common catechism about cream and sugar, we know that the worship of tea is established beyond question. The philosophic resignation of the guest to the fate awaiting him in the dubious decoction proclaims that in this single instant, instance the oriental spirit reigns supreme. The earliest record of tea in European writing is said to be found in the statement of an Arabian traveler that after the year 879 the main source of revenue in Canton were the duties of salt and tea. Marco Polo records the deposition of a Chinese minister of finance in 1285 for his arbitrary augmentation of the tea taxes. It was the period of the great discoveries that the European people began to know more about the extreme orient. At the end of the 16th century, the Hollanders brought the news that a pleasant drink was made in the east from the leaves of a bush. The travelers Giovanni Battista Ramusio, 1559, El Almeida, 1576, Mafeno, 1588, Torreira 1610 also mentioned tea. In the last named sh- in the last named year, ships of the Dutch East India Company brought the first tea into Europe. It was known in France in 1636 and reached Russia in 1638. England welcomed it in 1650. And spoke of it as that excellent and by all physicians approved China drink, called by the the Chinese Cha and by the other nations Te alias Tea. Like all good things of the world, the propaganda of tea met with opposition. Heretics, like Henry Seville, 1678, denounced drinking it as a filthy custom. Jonas Hanway Essay on Tea, 1756, said that men seemed to lose their stature and comeliness, women their beauty through the use of tea. Its cost at the start about 15 or 16 shillings a pound forbade popular consumption and made it regalia for high treatments and entertainment's presents being made thereof to princes and grandees. Yet in spite of such drawbacks, tea drinking spread with marvelous rapidity. The coffee houses of London in the early half century, half of the 18th century, became in fact tea houses, the resorts of wits like Addison and Steele, who beguiled themselves over their dish of tea. The beverage soon became a necessity of life, a taxable matter. We are reminded in this connection what an important part it plays in modern history. Colonial America resigned herself to oppression until human endurance gave way before the heavy duties laid on tea. American, interdependence, sorry, American independence states, from the throwing of tea chests in the Boston Harbor. There is a subtle charm in the taste of tea which makes it irresistible and capable of idealization. Western humorists were not slow to mingle the fragrance of their thought with its aroma. It has not the arrogance of wine, the self-consciousness of coffee, nor the simpering innocence of cocoa. Already in 1711, says the spectator... I would therefore, in a particular manner, recommend these my speculations to all well regulated families that set apart an hour every morning for tea, bread, and butter, and would earnestly advise them for their good to order this paper to be punctually served up to be looked upon as a part of the tea equipage. Samuel Johnson draws his own portrait as. A hardened and shameless tea drinker, who for twenty years diluted his meals with only the infusion of the fascinating plant, who with tea amused the evening, with tea solaced the night, and with tea welcomed the morning. Charles Lamb, a professed devotee, sounded the true note of teaism when he wrote that the greatest pleasure he knew was to do a good action by stealth and to have it found out by accident. For teaism, is the art of concealing beauty that you may discover it of suggesting what you dare not reveal it is the noble secret of laughing at yourself calming yet thoroughly calmly yet thoroughly and is thus humor itself the smile of philosophy all genuine humorists may in this sense be called tea philosophers thackeray for instance and of course shakespeare The poets of decadence, when was not the world in decadence, in their protests against materialism have, to a certain extent, also opened the way to teism. Perhaps nowadays it is our demure contemplation of the imperfect that the West and the East can meet in mutual consolation. The Taoists relate that at the great beginning of the no beginning, spirit and matter met in mortal combat. At last, the yellow emperor, the son of heaven, triumphed over... Su-Yung, the demon of darkness and earth. The titan, in his death agony, struck his head against the solar vault and shivered the blue dome of jade into fragments. The stars lost their nests. The moon wandered aimlessly among the wild chasms of the night. In despair, the yellow emperor sought far and wide for the repairer of the heavens. He had not to search in vain. Out of the eastern sea rose a queen, the divine Nyuka, horn-crowned and dragon-tailed, resplendent in her armor of fire. She welded the five-colored rainbow in her magic cauldron and rebuilt the Chinese sky. But it is told that Nyuka forgot to fill two tiny crevices in the blue firmament. Thus began the dualism of love. Two souls rolling through space and never at rest until they join together to complete the universe. Everyone has to build anew his sky of hope and peace, the heaven of modern humanity is indeed shattered in the Cyclopean struggle for wealth and power. The world is groping in the shadow of egotism and vulgarity. Knowledge is bought through a bad conscience, benevolence practiced for the sake of utility. The East and the West, like two dragons tossed in a sea of ferment, in vain strive to regain the jewel of life. We need a Niuka again to repair the grand devastation. We await the great avatar. Meanwhile, let us have a sip of tea. The afternoon glow is brightening the bamboos. The fountains are bubbling with delight. The sowing of the pines is heard in our kettle. Let us dream of evanescence and linger in the beautiful foolishness of things. That was the first chapter. I'll read one more chapter. Maybe I'll do the rest tomorrow. The Schools of Tea Tea is a work of art and needs a master hand to bring out its noblest qualities. We have good tea and bad tea as we have good and bad paintings, generally the latter. There is no single recipe for making the perfect tea as there are no rules for producing a titian or a sessin. Each preparation of the leaves has its individuality, each special affinity with water and heat, its own method of telling a story. The truly beautiful must always be in it. How much do we not suffer through the constant failure of society to recognize the simple and fundamental law of life? Li Qi Lai, a sung poet, has sadly remarked that there were three most deplorable things in the world. The spoiling of fine youths through false education, the degradation of fine art through vulgar admiration, and the utter waste of fine tea through incompetent manipulation. Like tea, (laughs) like art, tea has its periods and its schools. Its evolution may be roughly divided into three main stages, the boiled tea, the whipped tea, and the steeped tea. We moderns belong to the last school. These several methods of appreciating the beverage are indicative of the spirit of the age in which they prevailed. For life is an expression, our unconscious actions, the constant betrayal of our innermost thought. Confucius said, Man hideth not. Perhaps we reveal ourselves too much in small things because we have so little of the great to conceal. The tiny incidents of daily routine are as much a commentary of racial ideals as the highest flight of philosophy or poetry. Even as the difference in favorite vintage marks the separate idiosyncrasies of different periods and nationalities of Europe, so the tea ideals characterize the various moods of Oriental culture. The cake tea, which was boiled, the powdered tea, which was whipped, the leaf tea, which was steeped, mark the distinct emotional impulses of the Tang, the Sung, and the Ming dynasties of China. If we were inclined to borrow the much-abused terminology of art classification, we might designate them respectfully, respectively, the classic, the romantic, and the naturalistic schools of tea. The tea plant, a native of southern China, was known from very early times to Chinese botany and medicine. It is alluded to in the classics under the various names of Tao, Tse, Cheng, Ka, and Ming, and was highly prized for possessing the virtues of relieving fatigue, delighting the soul, strengthening the will, and repairing the eyesight. It was not only administered as an internal dose, but often applied externally in form of paste to alleviate rheumatic pains. The Taoists claimed claimed it as an important ingredient Of the elixir of immortality the buddhists used it extensively to prevent drowsiness during their long hours of meditation by the fourth and fifth centuries tea became a favorable beverage among the inhabitants of the yangtze kiang valley it was about this time that modern ideograph cha was coined evidently a corruption of the classic tou The poets of the southern dynasties have left some fragments of their fervent adoration of the froth of the liquid jade. Then-emperors used to bestow some rare preparation of the leaves on their high ministers as a reward for eminent services. Yet the method of drinking tea at this stage was primitive in the extreme. The leaves were steamed, crushed in a mortar, made into a cake, and boiled together with rice, ginger, salt, orange peel, spices, milk, and sometimes with onions— The custom obtains at the present day among the Thebians and various Mongolian tribes who make a curious syrup of these ingredients. The use of lemon slices by the Russians, who learned to take tea from the Chinese caravansaries, points to the survival of the ancient method. It needed the genius of the Tang dynasty to emancipate tea from its crude state and lead it to its final idealization. With Luwu In the middle of the 8th century, we have our first apostle of tea. He was born in an age when Buddhism, Taoism, and Confucianism were seeking mutual synthesis. The pantheistic symbolism of the time was urging one to mirror the universal in the particular. Lu Wu, a poet, saw in the tea service the same harmony and order which reigned through all things. In his celebrated work, The Chaking, the holy scripture of tea, he formulated the code of tea. He has since been worshipped as the tutelary god of the Chinese tea merchants. The Chaking, or Cha King, I would say. Yeah, the Cha (laughs) King consists of three volumes and ten chapters. In the first chapter, Lu Wu treats of the nature of the tea plant, in the second, uh, of the implements for gathering the leaves, in the third, the selection of the leaves. According to him, the best quality of the leaves must have creases like the leathern boot of the tartar horseman, curl like a dewlap of a mighty bullock, unfold like a mist rising out of a ravine, gleam like a lake touched by a zephyr, and be wet and soft like fine earth newly swept by rain. The fourth chapter is devoted to the enumeration and description of the twenty-four members of the tea equipage, beginning with the tripod brassiere and ending with the bamboo cabinet for containing all these utensils. Here we notice Lu Bu's predilection for Taoist symbolism. Also, it is interesting to observe in this connection to the the influence of tea on Chinese ceramics. The celestial porcelain, as it is well known, had its origin in an attempt to reproduce the exquisite shade of jade, resulting in the Tang Dynasty, in the blue glaze of the south, and the white glaze of the north Lu Wu considered the blue as the ideal color for the teacup as it lent additional greenness to the beverage whereas the white made it look pinkish and distasteful it was because he used cake tea later on when the tea masters of sung took to the powdered tea they preferred heavy bowls of blue black and dark brown the mings with their steep tea rejoiced in light wear of white porcelain. The fifth chapter, Luwu describes the method of making tea. He eliminates all ingredients except salt. He dwells also on the much-discussed question of the choice of water and the degree of boiling it. According to him, the mountain spring is the best. The river water and the spring water come next in order of excellence. There are three stages of boiling. The first boil is when the little bubbles, like the eye of fishes, swim on the surface. The second boil is when the bubbles are like crystal beads rolling in a fountain. The third boil is when the billows surge wildly in the kettle. The cake tea is roasted before the fire until it becomes soft like a baby's arm and is shredded into powder between pieces of fine paper. Salt is put in the first bowl, the tea in the second. At the third boil, a dipper full of of cold water is poured into the kettle to settle the tea and revive the youth of the water. Then the beverage was poured into cups and drunk. Oh, nectar. The filmy leaflet hung like scaly clouds in a serene sky or floated like water lilies on emerald streams. It was of such a beverage that Lo Tung, a Tang poet, wrote, the first cup moistens my lips and throat. The second cup breaks my loneliness. The third cup searches my barren entrail, but to find therein some 5,000 volumes of odd ideographs. The fourth cup raises a slight perspiration. All the wrong of life passes away through my pores. At the fifth cup, I am purified. The sixth cup calls me to the realms of the immortals. The seventh cup, ah, but I could take no more. I only feel the breath of cool wind that rises in my sleeves. Where is Horai-san? Let me ride on this sweet breeze and waft away thither. The remaining chapters of the Cha King treat of the vulgarity of the ordinary methods of tea drinking, a historical summary of illustrious tea drinkers, the famous tea plantations of China, the possible variations of the tea service, and illustrations of the tea utensils. The last is unfortunately lost. The appearance of the Cha King must have created considerable sensation at the time. Lu Wu was befriended by the emperor Tai Taesong 763 to 779, and his fame attracted many followers. Some exquisites were said to have been able to detect the tea made by Lu Wu from that of his disciples. One Mandarin has his name immortalized by his failure to appreciate the tea of this great master. In the Sung dynasty, the whipped tea came into fashion and created the second school of tea. The leaves were ground to fine powder in a small stone mill and the preparation was whipped in hot water by a delicate whisk made of split bamboo. The new process led to some changes in the tea equipage of Luwu, as well as the choice of leaves. Salt was discarded forever. The enthusiasm of the Sung people for tea knew no bounds. Epicures vied, for, vied with each other in discovering new varieties, and regular tournaments were held to decide their superiority. The emperor Kya Sung 1101 to 1124, who was too great an artist to be, to be a well-behaved monarch, lavished his treasures on the attainment of rare species. He himself wrote a dissertation on the 20 kinds of tea, among which he prizes the white tea as the rarest and finest quality. The tea ideal of the Song's differed from the Tang's, even as their notion of life differed. They sought to actualize what their predecessors tried to symbolize, to the Neo-Confucian mind, this, the cosmic law was not reflected on the, on the phenomenal world, but the phenomenal world was the cosmic law itself. Aeons were but moments, nirvana always within grasp. The Taoists' conception that immortality lay in the eternal change permeated all their modes of thought. It was the process, not the deed, which was interesting. It was the completing, not the completion, which was really vital. Man came thus at once to face with nature. A new meaning grew into the art of life. The tea began to be not a poetical pastime, but one of the methods of self-realization. Wang Yucheng eulogized tea as, flooding his soul with a direct appeal, that its delicate bitterness reminded him of the aftertaste of a good counsel. So Tumba wrote of the strength of the immaculate purity in tea, which defied corruption as a truly virtuous man. Among the Buddhists, the southern Zen sect, which incorporated so much of Taoist doctrine, formulated an elaborate ritual of tea. The monks gathered before the image of Bodhidharma and drank tea out of a single bowl with the profound formality of a holy sacrament— it was this Zen ritual which finally developed into the tea ceremony of Japan in the 15th century. Unfortunately, the sudden outburst of the Mongol tribes in the 13th century, which resulted in the devastation and conquest of China under the barbaric rule of the Yuan emperors, destroyed all the fruits of Sung culture. The native dynasty of the Mings, which attempted renationalization in the middle of the 15th century, was harassed by internal troubles, and China again fell into the alien role of the Manchus in the 17th century. Manners and customs changed to leave no vestige of the former times. The powdered tea is entirely forgotten. We find a Ming commentator at loss to recall the shape of the tea whisk mentioned in one of the Sung classics. Tea is now taken by steeping the leaves in hot water in a bowl or cup. The reason why the Western world is innocent of the older method of drinking tea is explained by the fact that Europe knew it only as the close at the close of the Ming dynasty. To the latter day, Chinese tea is a delicious beverage, but not an ideal. The long woes of his country have robbed him of the zest for the meaning of life. He has become modern, that is to say, old and disenchanted. He has lost that sublime faith in illusions, which constitutes the eternal youth and vigor of the poets and ancients. He is an eclectic and politely accepts the traditions of the universe. He toys with nature, but does not condescend to conquer nor worship her. His leaf tea is often wonderful with its flower-like aroma, but the romance of the Tang and Sung ceremonials have not to be found in his cup. Japan, which followed closely on the footsteps of China's civilization, has known the tea in all its three stages. As early as the year 729, we read of the emperor Shomu giving tea to 100 monks at his palace in Nara. The leaves were probably imported by our ambassadors to the Tang court and prepared in the way, then in fashion. In 801, the monk Saicho brought back some seeds and planted them in Yesan. Many tea gardens are heard of in succeeding centuries, as well as the delight of the aristocracy and priesthood in the beverage. The sung tea reached us in 1191 with the return of the Yesei Zenji, who went there to study the southern Zen school. The new seeds which he carried home were were successfully planted in three places, one of which, the Uji district near Kyoto, bears still the name of producing the best tea in the world. The southern Zen spread with marvelous rapidity, and with it the tea ritual and the tea ideal of the song. By the 15th century, under the patronage of the shogun, Ashikaga Voshinasa, the tea ceremony, is fully constituted and made into an independent and secular performance. Since then, teaism is fully established in Japan. The use of the steep tea of the later China is comparatively recent among us, being only known since the middle of the 17th century. It has replaced the powdered tea in ordinary consumption, though the latter still continues to hold its place in, as the tea of teas. It is the Japanese. It is in the Japanese tea ceremony that we see the culmination of tea ideals. Our successful resistance of the Mongol invasion in 1281 had enabled us to carry on the Sung movement so disastrously cut off in China itself through the nomadic inroad tea with us became more than an idealization of the form of drinking. It is a religion of the art of life. The beverage grew to be an excuse for the worship of purity and refinement, a sacred function at which the host and guest joined to produce for that occasion the utmost beatitude of the mundane. The tea room was an oasis in the dreary waste of existence where wary travelers could meet to drink from the common spring of art appreciation. The ceremony was an improvised drama plot whose plot was woven about the tea, the flowers, and the paintings, not a color to disturb the tone of the room, not a sound to mar the rhythm of things, not a gesture to obtrude on the harmony, not a word to break the unity of the surroundings. All movements to be performed simply and naturally. Such were the aims of the tea ceremony. And strangely enough, it was often successful. A subtle philosophy lay behind it all. Teaism was Taoism in disguise. And I think I'll leave you with that. Maybe I'll read the rest later. But I highly encourage you to pick up this book. It's one of those books that you can read and reread. It, it, it teaches, taught me how to apply ideas and practices. It has nothing to do, you know. I'm born. I talk about my Judaism. As a religion and as a race, I will say I'm by blood Jewish 2,000 years ago, all the way back. And by religion, I have certainly know religion, but it's a trickier subject to me. But what is beautiful that I have in my religion are all the teachings that I can apply, that I have applied. I think about my grandfather. I think about the rabbis I've worked with. I think about my trips to Israel, touching the wall. I think about fasting and the customs and the prayers. And for me, it's not about talking to God. It's not about doing things for for God. It's about figuring out how to live. And this book and the concepts around teism you know, I talked about Taoism a lot, but uh, we can also get into Shinto. You don't have... To, it's not about... It's not binary. It's not like, do I believe in this? Do I follow this? Am I one of the... Am I this? Am I a noun? Am I a Jew? Am I a Taoist? Am I a Shinto? You know, No. Just look at people. People are like the best textbooks. Just look at people and, and pay attention and learn and connect with the ideas, the actions distill from their actions, what you can apply to your life. And that's what I really love about tea. And that's what I love about this book. It's a wonderful introduction to my application of tea on my life. So I'll probably like come back to this at some point and read the rest of it. I don't know, potentially tomorrow if I'm in the mood, but yeah. I highly encourage you to read it yourself. Hope you're having a wonderful weekend and you do not have coronavirus. Peace.